0: Come on without. Come on within. You not seen nothing like the mighty Quinn. Everybody's building. Ships and boats, some are building monuments, others counting out floats. Everybody's in despair, every girl and boy. When Quinn the Eskimo gets here, everybody's gonna jump for joy. Come on without, come on within, and not say nothing, God Almighty Quinn. Come on without. We're not seeing nothing like the mighty Quinn. I like to go just like the rest. I like my sugar sweet. Jumping chains and making haste just ain't my cup of meat. Nobody can get no sleep, the samba on anyone's choice. When Quinn the Eskimo gets here, everybody's gonna want a dose. Come on without, come on within. You not say nothing like the mighty Quinn. Come on without, come on within. You not see nothing like the mighty Quinn. If I do what I want to do, I can't decide on my own. Just tell me where to put it, and I'll tell you who to call. I didn't get no sits. Everybody's out there feeding pigeons on a limb. But when Quinn the Eskimo gets here, all the pigeons gonna run to him. Come on without. Come on within. You not see nothing like the mighty Quinn. Come on without, come on within. You not see nothing like the mighty Quinn. Shoot,
1: I got the wrong. Can I change this? I need to change the designation. I gotta tr- edit the stream info. Cause I'm not supposed to have. I have to have the correct type. Oh, I also didn't turn off the volume. Shit. Fuck, I'm really bungling today. Sorry, guys. I think I sound better. I realized I literally just forgot to turn the knob up on the volume last time and when everyone was telling me it needed to be louder. Very apologetic. Sorry. I am not good at this stuff. Okay, it's now under talk shows and podcasts. Hopefully that will register. There we go. All is right with the world. And it sounds a little louder. Does it sound better? I was getting all frustrated, and I realized, oh, I'm no longer just on my laptop with the laptop microphone. I have an external device over here with knobs on it, you fucking moron. you got to turn the knobs. So I turned the knob, and I think it's louder. I turned off the other thing, so it should not be echoey any. So I'm going to turn it up a little bit more. How amazing is it that the Taliban very well could take control formally of Afghanistan's government on the 20th anniversary of 9 11? Can you just get your head around that? And even if it isn't, it'll be close enough for government work. 20 fucking years. 20 years. All of it thanks to America's choice. A chosen war of aggression. We know this because we know that the Taliban offered in fall of 2001 exactly what we have now, or what we're going to have now, which is the Taliban as part of a government. At least. But without... Oh, and Al-Qaeda and uh, Bin Laden handed over on a fucking plate to the United States. Or at the very least, like, executed in Afghanistan. Could have had that deal. And instead we got this. And you cannot say that it was a mistake. This is the important thing. That it was a bungle or a fuck-up or a missed opportunity. We were, we've been, ever since the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States have been blindly groping for a political uh, agenda that could fit the underlying economic necessity of a continued war economy. The United States, after World War II, was premised on military, military spending in order to maintain a military hegemony that then undergirds a economic hegemony, a global capitalist system that is not distributed uh, evenly across the globe, but that is concentrated in the United States, where the entire global economy acts as a ratchet, pulling towards the United States, like the big black hole. And it's def- and that regime is a imperial regime, and that regime is undergirded by imperial relationships. But thanks to technology, more than anything, that imperialism no longer has to be formal. So that means no more colonies. Instead, you have trade networks and the U.S. dollar, and then after the 70s, the petrodollar. But it's also upheld by the military. It's upheld by this force projection. That makes the American dollar the safest place for value to be stored. Because we have the fucking capacity to assert our fucking will. Which is what is the actual basis for the value of currency. It has nothing to do with intrinsic value of precious metals or anything else. It doesn't have to do with any transcendent notion of value. It is... The the power of the state to affirm the exchange that involves that currency. And thanks to our military, the United States is the world currency that is most affirmable militarily. So therefore, the most stably store of value. So we get to be the consumers at the end of the supply chain. Our consumption gets to fuel the entire machinery. And the context whereby we affirmed that after World War II was in the context of a Cold War with the Soviet Union, a conflict of values between fr- democracy and totalitarianism, or freedom and, uh, and conformity, whatever bullshit we wanted to jack ourselves off about. With the Soviet Union, that prerogative failed, fell away, and the nakedness of American empire became uh, clear. And there was a crisis at first. There was a lot of talk in Washington about something they called a peace dividend at the end of the Soviet Union. All that money we spent in the military should come back, but that would require, but that would undermine America's consumer economy. It would undermine the machinery we had made. So there had to be a new modus vivendi. George H.W. Bush started it off by essentially tricking. Entrapping Saddam Hussein into invading Kuwait, they entrapped him like uh, like fucking Marion Barry, so that they could affirm the America as the global policeman after the global policeman of the New World Order, but that doesn't really have the same uh, persuasive power of uh, a civilizational crisis. So we just kind of drifted, even after that. Hell, that war couldn't even get fucking Bush reelected for Christ's sake, and then Clinton spent eight years. Uh, struggling for something. Hey, what if we bomb the Serbs? Some kind of argument for why we have this giant military. And then 9-11 happened. And this, for me, is why we will never get rid of uh, the sneaking suspicion that 9-11 was an inside job. Because it fulfilled a historic role that Seems outlandish to have just occurred exogenously to the system. But of course, the thing to remember is it wasn't. It was the outcome of all of this. It was the outcome of America's imperial power play. It was blowback. But when it got, we received the blowback from 9 11, there was no accountability. There's no danger. There's no concern. Oh no, people are going to realize that we've made, we brought this on ourselves. Because they have a new story to tell now. And it does not involve making a deal with the Taliban to hand over Bin Laden and then we all have to sit around and say, "Hey, why did that happen? Why why did these guys blow this place up?" No. Cuz where does that lead? It sure as shit doesn't lead to another argument, another tale to tell to justify a globe-spanning empire. Fuck no. And if you have both parties on board, and you have, more importantly than that, you have the military-industrial bureaucracy. Forget even, uh, just forget even the money involved. Just the sheer weight of bureaucratic uh, momentum. And then the specific desires of the freaks of the, in the Bush White House. Nobody's going to take that deal. They're going to fucking put pedal to the metal. Hell, they went to Iraq more than anything in order to keep that energy going somewhere. They ran out of good targets to blow up in Afghanistan. That uh, Rumsfeld was pushing Iraq from day one because they wanted a fucking project. And Afghanistan, even though it's crucial in like geostrategic terms uh, uh, in Central Asia, you know, uh, where it's positioned, especially related to things like opium and fucking pipelines, compared to the motherfucking Middle East, it's a total backwater. They needed someplace at the center of the great game. And the great game had moved south and west. So the stake had to be driven in. And also, if you're going to keep this new war footing, it requires continued pressure and continued threat because eventually people are going to normalize that 9-11 happened. So you have to create the prospect of future 9-11s. and it's like the joke about like bin laden said that the point of doing 911 was to make america destroy itself through imperial overreach and people say ha ah, he's getting exactly what he wants well it's no it's what he wanted but way more importantly than that it's what he wanted it's what the system demanded it's what was it was what was required for the system to continue and the system will continue because it can no longer post soviet union be resisted or is resisted in the current moment in any coherent way. We have a broken working class, a broken humanity, and we are at the mercy of this thing, and we have been for a while. By the time 9-11 happened, we had been declassified. We had been atomized, and the last 20 years has been only the continued acceleration of that process as the, the, the systemic shocks, the ex, the. The uh, environmental, the truly the environmental and resource-based shocks are accumulating in the system and creating this spiral of destabilization that is now reverberating through our entire political structure. And it's undermining the system's ability to, uh, to continue. And that is what makes it so hard sometimes to understand how this shit works because, Nobody actually in charge wants things to be the way they are. Like that's why people have to invent lizard men who want to eat babies because you ha- there is no human desire for where we are and where we're going. Nobody wants the world to cook. Nobody wants it. Maybe there's a few nihilist psycho-billionaires who think they're going to Mars, but they are a fraction of a fraction of people and they don't really, they have no power. Their money is what has power. Nobody wants this, but we're getting it because we have lost the fight for control of the technological uh, mechanisms. What we lost it to was capitalism, was the the programming, was the machine. Skynet became self-aware. And so the thing that would have been best for humanity by any stretch, including the ruling classes of America, after 9-11 would have been an inward, as is always the case, it would have been an inward look towards, you know, actually creating democracy, just like it would have been better after World War II if we'd had a Henry Wallace-led rapprochement with the Soviets and a, and a mutual uh, progress towards decolonization instead of the Cold War. And if we had gotten a real reconstruction after World War I, after the Civil War, and if we'd gotten a German Revolution after World War I, And at every turn, the wrench moved, the the human intervention in the system became less. Our ability to actually do our regular lives and make it mean anything has has changed, has reduced. We We still have power, and this is why this is beyond black pill. We still have power. We're all humans. We literally are in charge of this thing still. But we cannot be humans the way we are now and stop it the incentive structures that are built into our social relationships if followed if if rationally followed will prevent us from ever meaningfully resisting this thing until it's too late if it isn't already So the hope is that we become different people and that the changes, the changes that are going to come to our understanding of our material relationships, and more importantly than anything, our faith in the existing structures that we operate under are going to be fatally compromised. And once that happens, we aren't the same people anymore. We respond to different stimuluses and different, uh, different motivations and respond differently. And so we have hope. But the reason that it looks like we don't is because we are trapped in structures that were created uh, at, the, at, at the dawn of the, of, the, of, the, of the modern moment, the high modernist moment of, of the Cold War. Like everything, Every structure we have is desi- was designed to facilitate existence in the context of the post-war world, which was an extensively uh, infinite progress that will always be able to uh, create new avenues of profit by uh, intensifying uh, technology. And that that process will be overseen by human beings who are in charge of it. And who are going to utilize structures of science technology to be able to figure out the correct thing to do. And then we will use democratic means of governance to figure out what the what, what the collective interest is and then pursue it using these technologies and these uh, structures of governance. Now, this system contains within it inherent class contradictions, racial contradictions, all, all sorts of social pathologies that come from the fact that it's an unequal society. But we can manage those uh, that uh, pain, manage that alienation, through a redistributive, redistributive process. We redistribute wealth to the working class. First the white ones, then after black self-assertion, to a greater degree, uh, the, the black ones. Then other uh, groups as they assert their uh, rights also and, and are accommodated into a a, glo, uh, a common citizenship. And that we will all be deliberating through the lens of a mass mediated culture where we all have certain understandings of what America is, American interests. We have a certain credulity uh, to the best interests or to the uh, we have a credulity about things like the media and things like government. We assume a level of honesty. Uh, We assume a level of trust because. If we're in the center of this thing, if we're people who are who have succeeded enough to be citizens to vote, then our experience with America has only been positive. We won the war, and now we're creating mass comfort in uh, in a consumer society where we all get to be wonderful. We all get to be. We don't get to express our individuality, our humanity, through control of our work, but we do get to express it through control of our environment in the form of consumption. So we have sublimated away all of that class conflict. And we get, in return, material comforts. We get the suburban home. We get uh, new and better appliances that make our lives easier. We get dreams of greater and greater uh, 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 consumption. Bigger cars, bigger houses. Trips uh, to Disney World. Fantasies we never knew, could imagine. We create and then pursue them. And we can pursue them. And... It functioned for a while. But then, first, the social uh, conflicts started heating up in the 60s, but at that very moment, the environmental constraints, the material constraints started to kick in. The One of those big key of that equation, cheap energy inputs blew off. This whole thing, the, 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 there were a bunch of uh, warning signs that the, the system was going to seize up in the 70s, uh, and Nixon tried his damnedest to try to keep the thing going with the pushing every button uh, that Keynes has. But it was the fucking uh, oil crisis that permanent made it permanent and that put us in a new permanent position vis-a-vis all these inputs. And what that meant is, is that the treats couldn't flow. The promise of treats would, would dry up. And instead of confronting that, because by then the Democratic Party had become a husk with no working class imperative, and all it had was uh, liberal moralism to sell people, wear a sweater and stop wanting so much, Reagan was there to say, with a pitch honed by uh, 40 years of anti-New Deal uh, uh, reactionary uh, ideology being formed, hey, you know what? There's still hope. If we cut regulations and taxes, if we make you pay less for the state, then you will be able to have more to use. We're not going to give you any more money. We don't say that out loud, but it's the obvious outcome. We don't push these points anymore. We just push taxes and regulations. And people do make some money. If you had a home by 1980, they protected it. You were in under the gun. If you didn't, you were fucked. And if you were in an urban area that had been deindustrialized early, you got the drug war shoved up your ass. But if you were in the suburbs, you got home equity that you could borrow against. You got cheap credit that you could buy with. But what that means is that the number of people who are invested in this thing, who believe in it, who do things like vote and care and participate civically, starts to dry up. And the only ones left are those people who have succeeded through it. But over time, there are fewer and fewer of them. And their kids don't have access to any of these deals. And so all the premise, the structures of of government, the structures of belief and compulsion that had been forged in the post-war era are still there, still all we have, cannot be interfered with because we don't have a political uh, um, counter-hegemony to it, but no longer hold any persuasive power to people. We no longer believe in any of them. Fewer and fewer people participate, and the ones that do are now participating through a lens that says these uh, collective... Structures, these things that we believed had like a universal character, like we're Americans in this together, those are gone now. The outside is not not America, it's inside America. And that's all because things keep getting worse, and the ratchet of misery keeps uh, going up, and the ratchet of precarity. Uh, Matt Iglesias is talking the other day about how actually everybody has it great. Americans have it so good. And of course, if you put it in, on paper, yeah, everybody has it good. But that's not how people experience the world. The world experience is experienced relatively and subjectively, and the relative subjective experience is being wildly lonely and miserable all the fucking time, and if not wildly precarious and terrified all the fucking time, some version of that, some version of ang- of anxiety and alienation felt and un- that cannot be subsumed by pleasure by uh, consumption. Because, one, the consumption is less satisfying than it used to be, and, two, there's less of it to access. So everybody is miserable. You can put them on a graph and say their lives are, uh, by relative measure to other countries, great, Uh, And there, and uh, things are, John Shade said that the other day. He's like, he's saying why everyone's mad is Fox news. And he eliminated all these other options. And by any, by pointing out that the math, the science didn't work. And for him, it's like, Hey, things are getting worse. And Shade says, actually, things are doing fine. Things are actually getting better. Uh, 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 Wages are slightly increasing. And, you know, uh, all these people are earning, uh, 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 you know, middle-class lifestyles. Sure, it doesn't feel that way. And that's where people live. People live their lives through those felt associations. And politics is an expression of those feelings, not rationality, not some coherent ideology. Very few people operate that way. Everybody's fucking miserable. I was looking at... uh, This amazing thread that Alex Lone Option, uh, uh, FYM God, curated of the police blotter of the villages in Florida and a bunch of people driving drunk in golf carts. But one that stuck out for me was a woman who was arrested at a Burger King in the villages for losing her shit on a uh, Burger King employee because she didn't like the tomato in her Whopper, and she called her the N-word, and I think like a black bitch or something, and was actually arrested. She got probation. Now, obviously this is a racist, bitter woman who uh, who just saw a, a black person who was not subservient enough to them and was enraged by it. But just imagine the idea that you're going to get mad that your fucking tomatoes in your Burger King aren't good. It's Burger King, man. It's never been good. You live in the villages. How could this be your last straw? Like I can get somebody whose life is a misery, getting a bad tomato in a in a Whopper, and then they don't get a nobody helps them, and they flip out. This person's life is sim is been a gossamer hammock. but it feels like misery because they're getting old because they know they're going to die because they have to displace that anxiety somewhere. And they put it in these culture wars. They put it in fixating on not any of the pleasures of their life, but the, all the ways that the pleasure isn't sufficient so that they can build up uh, resentment, which is the only kind of feeling they can have anymore And people call that a Karen or whatever, but everybody is doing that to some extent or another. Everybody is trying to find somebody to yell at for the misery they feel, no matter where they are on the scale. It's universal misery, and it is expressed through a universal desire to yell at someone. Because fundamentally we are consumers, we're not workers, we're not PMC either, Uh, we're not bug men, I mean, we're not any of this shit. We are fucking consumers. I mean, I guess that is bug men. Fine. But we are all, no matter where we are on the spectrum, no matter what our edgy political takes are, no matter uh, what chain we visit, we are fucking consumers. And that means that when we're confronted with a bad customer service experience, which all of us feel we're getting from living in the United States right now, everybody feels like they're getting a bad consumer experience They have only the resource and recourse to yell at someone to make it change because the assumption that we all live with and don't speak of is that we have no power over anything. We, individually, people have no power over everything. There is somebody else somewhere who does, though, and if we yell at them, we will get somewhere. The same way that if we uh, yell at Verizon long enough, they'll do something. Or we, we'll get a free refill. I mean, somebody says Mad as hell. That's one of the things that's so perfect about network, among other things, is that it's understanding of like someone trying to galvanize the alienation that is accumulating in, a, in that other moment of crisis, the 70s. By the way, that's when the Great Reset happened. Everybody freaking out about the Great Reset. The Great Reset happened in the Carter administration. And it was solidified by the by Reagan's election. That was the great reset. Everything has been reset since then. Now, and what that reset was, is the end of the equation. The end of that post-war order, where you had a political system fed by this economic system, a political economy. We built a new political economy, but we didn't talk about it. We didn't notice it. We didn't actually debate it or fight over it. It just it just happened. Well, we kept all of the same structures and we've been using those same structures to try to govern ourselves and try to imagine that we're participating in a political process. Well, the actual political or the uh, economic machine restructures our lives completely without our consent because it's being done undemocratically. It's been abstracted out of democracy. It's being done at the Fed. It's being done uh, where, in the WTF. WTF, the WTO and the IMF It's being done by uh, the Federal Reserve. It's being done by NAFTA. So every decision is made, uh, every crisis emerges and a decision is made. And the decision is made at the expense of people in favor of profit. That is chintzy, but it's true. And, of course, there are people associated with those prophets, but they are really just at this point along for the ride. None of us are actually in charge of the thing anymore. And so the reason everything looks hopeless is because we have structures that exist that are no longer connected to power in any way, but we have no way to act differently because there's no counter-hegemonic structures that we can involve ourselves in. We used to have that. We had a working, a a conscious working class political counter hegemony in this country that lasted from the Popular Front to the seventies. It re- it reached its apogee in World War II. It was beaten and destroyed and broken after the war with uh, the counter revolutionary forces of the American uh, bourgeois coming together to carry out the second red scare to pass taft-hartley and then it carried on as part of this executive committee of capitalism along with you know uh, the uh, c- corporate boards uh, and, and the, the deep state and all that stuff, uh, the military- industrial complex, all of it, the, the whole deal. They were po- uh, they were at the table of power. And they were making sure that working class people got more, uh, got better wages, got more respect, were invent, were allowed to move through and up into positions of cultural power and influence, and therefore make art that was informed by a working class, a self conscious working class experience, that saw the New Deal as something that had benefited them. Once you change the. Uh, economic structure, once you break working-class power like was broken in the 70s and 80s, that conveyor belt to culture is broken. Nobody More and more working-class people cannot expect their kids to be able to uh, take the risks to enter the arts uh, or to be able to uh, compete on an even playing field with the richer children of the upper classes uh, for the meritocratic spots that they're all going for. And they get squeezed out of the system. And the ones that are left have been exposed their entire life to a culture where they were never a worker, where the working is not something that they understand. They were only ever a consumer because they've only encountered culture that was created after the death of of the labor uh, movement and therefore of working class culture. But the hope, the reason that there's wild hope in everyone's hearts, or should be, is that these structures are, of course, doomed to be destroyed by the changing uh, material conditions that they deny. But that doesn't just mean, you know, climate change. It doesn't just mean ocean, uh, 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 ocean, ash the ocean acidification or any of that shit it's also uh, that it no longer can persuade people to go along with it it can no longer persuade people to keep doing their jobs and if it can't persuade them to keep reading their jobs, keep doing their jobs then the thing can't operate because it still needs people for a while, we'll see it still needs people But right now, we're all stuck at the end state of, of consumer panic where we're just complaining to capital, complaining to the, going on the internet to, to, to complain to the, uh, the helpline of the United States on Twitter, uh, anywhere else. But no one is paying attention. No one is actually manning the lines. Your call is not important to anyone. And that's why it feels helpless. But that just means people have to, are going to lose faith in this thing. If you don't get enough calls, if you don't get enough responses, you will decide to do something. Now, the thing they're going to do isn't necessarily going to be great. Not everyone is going to be spontaneously moved towards communism, but the window opens. The historic window opens. There's a reason that Toussaint Breda, which was what he was named called for most of his life, when he Uh, came to prominence in the Haitian Revolution, started calling himself Toussaint Louverture, the opening. Because that was a Haitian phrase for like a liminal space where, where possibilities emerge. And he was that. He was the opening that like Haitian humanity could flow through. So we just got to keep moving and roll with the changes, as Ariode Speedwagon said. But of course, this requires a certain degree of faith, a leap of faith that we haven't gone past the point of no return, that Skynet has not completely grabbed everyone who matters. But that hope is the same hope that carries you through the day, the hope that makes you think that opening your eyes is going to be worth doing and that spending any time on Earth is worth doing. And that is is not a rational thing, and it's certainly not a prediction that you can confidently make through the mists of absolute bafflement that make up our understanding of the world around us. We feel, and so we live. And yeah, that's why I think it's going to be religious. I think there's going to be a religious element to it. But I don't know what it's going to be. Just keeping my... I'm keep, Right now, I'm doing my best, although probably not my best. I'm doing... I'm doing a attempt at keeping my know, my keeping my ear to the ground to hear the tremble of ho- horse hooves trying my, I don't know I do think there is something heartening in the fact that at, at a terminal point aristocracy which is always what the ruling class is becomes uh so interbred uh and so uh decadent that it can no longer exercise power i mean that's one of the th- that's what doomed feudalism is that the aristocracy lost its vigor like there there are potential kings who could have mahan- handled the conflict the the crises of like 1789 or 1917 but they sure as shit weren't the kings produced by hundreds of years of in and I don't mean inbreeding literally I mean inbreeding class-wise of idle aristocrats in the Capet and uh, and Romanov lines the places where ca- ca- uh, where power was able to stay uh, in stable hands were places where the uh, aristocracy handed over power to the bourgeois on some conditions The Stuarts had a hard time coming to terms with it, and they had to be several times disciplined and then eventually removed because they could not accept the reality of bourgeois rule in England. They had to fucking import the Dutch to do it. They essentially, the first two capitalist economies of Europe did a merger. They were no longer competing, they were essentially cooperating. And, it, and out of that became a ruling class that essentially gave up power in exchange for privilege, wealth, uh, and uh, a big hat. And so the Dutch and Krauts who came after the Stuarts were a new housebroken ruling class. But in countries where that process happened differently, like France, like Russia. Uh, the uh, aristocrats held power until they had lost their control over uh, the rest of populace and were ruled by incompetent dullards, whose ability to intervene in events from a position of information and, and will and authority, leadership, had been attenuated by their lack of struggle that their, their lives have been just as fat little babies sitting around and that has been true for their chi- their parents and parents parents and we are certainly at that point now because capitalism is also class rule just as social so just as feudalism had been it must also be ruled by an aristocracy but that aristocracy has to have a different cultural validation the feudal, feudal aristocracy was validated by their uh, first their warrior prowess and then later more abstractly uh, their uh, the will of God through their ability to uh, win at battle basically God's will is determined on the battlefield whoever wins deserves power because God has willed it that is the evangelical Christian notion of right that persists today into uh, uh, America's ideology, America's national ideology, which is at war with its uh, in, the international ideology of, of uh, finance capitalism. But a new era requires a new justification. Uh People didn't believe in God that same way. Uh, democracy was more insistent. People at the base had more of an ability to articulate their uh, their wants and desires and rights, like the urban hordes of uh, Paris and Moscow. And in that context, a new validation for aristocracy had to emerge. And it was the meritocracy. And that's why the signal figure of liberalism, the the godhead of liberalism, is Napoleon Bonaparte. The meritocrat of meritocrats who seized power from the decadent and decayed uh, Bourbon dynasty through sheer will and ability replaced one monarchy with another where the premise was not God but of one's ability. Napoleon. When he crowned himself emperor, he literally crowned himself emperor. He put the motherfucking hat on his own head. Pope, fuck off. He had nothing to do with it. And under Napoleon, liberalism is vital. Under Napoleon, liberalism is a fighting creed that gets people to fucking fight and die in thousands on the battlefield march into Russia and freeze to death. Because it gets results. Because he actually was a goddamn meritocrat. Then the meritocrats' kids, you're not going to let the kid go out and and compete on an even playing field with everybody else. They couldn't if they wanted to. They're absorbing shit at a level that gets them in the door inherently. And so the kids of the meritocrats are slightly less meritocratic than their parents had been. Their kids are less meritocratic than theirs had been. Some are so unmeritocratic they fall out. Sometimes people from the uh, working classes move up in to the top through being so damn meritocratic. But then, guess what? Their kids, less meritocratic than them. Until they either fall out or stabilize. And it is a decline that cannot be interrupted. And now our meritocrats are absolute fucking Habsburgian incompetence. They are dull-eyed, slack wits. The President of the United States, the last two, are demented old men, meritocrats in different ways, and so that's part of the reason that this machine is, this fucking plane is crashing into the mountain, is that they have no ability or will to work against uh, the imper- imperatives of capitalism, even if they, even if they wanted to, even if they desire something different. They can only express it through the most idiotic way. The fucking rich the 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 there are billionaires in this country who believe in QAnon, basically. Pete Ricketts, the governor of Oklahoma, or I think his brother, the guy who owns the Cubs, one of those Rickettses, a billionaire, uh, has had their emails leaked and it's all Denise D'Souza shit that's supposed to be for rubes, that for generations was for rubes, but now rubes is all that's left. And that goes for the liberals too. The most slack witted, sorkin', true believing dipshits are all that's left. Or people who are a little more, uh, have a little more practical understanding of the game, but are 900 years old. Our gerontocracy, they hang around because they're the only people with institutional knowledge anymore. Everybody else grew up in little pods, little goo balls. And this system, and as I said, this system is doing things against the will of those in charge of it. These people see their kids are worse than them, they see that their kids suck. They don't want them to suck. They see the ways that the system makes them suck. But they can still only do what the system tells them to do. And so then they have to explain this. And they can only get the same fake, delusional, cultural explanations that used to be for the dummies. Because they're just as dumb. They don't have any more insight into the world because they are experiencing it as just a far removed from power. A guy like Joe Biden, he has faint memories of his head, in his head of when government meant something. And he's been living in that echoing uh, chamber his whole life. That's why these old fucks are in charge of their Democratic Party. Because there is no will to take power from them among those younger than them. Because power doesn't mean anything to them. Because they know it's not real. So eventually, even though your ruling class has all of these tools at their disposal to wield power, and the working and, and class has nothing but their uh, their cooperation, eventually their misery and alienation becomes so acute that they are able to come together and assert power that the decrepit ruling class can't resist. I do believe that we will get to a point of... of, of organizing among the the dispossessed, the increasingly dispossessed. And the question that is still open, though, is to what degree has technology filled the gap of human experience and intelligence and initiative that used to be the thing that undermined previous ruling classes? And there is a hole that we can't see into because it will only prove itself one way or the other through the passage of time uh, and the intervention of events, which we can't know. We can only participate in them uh, in good faith, and that is, that is our task, to participate in good faith in the life that uh, emerges around us and not to deny, uh, deny it in fantasy. Somebody asked for an example of the demiurge uh, in the contemporary world. If you think of if you think of the the demiurge as as this uh, as the will of humanity's uh, the nightmare mind of humanity, basically uh, that is what are um, that is generated by our alienation from one another. And that we then inscribe in the world to reify that alienation. Because we need it. We need to be alienated from each other in order to exploit one another. And our will to exploit has been traditionally stronger than our pull away uh, towards each other. Because at every point, those in power are using their power to create structures that reinforce alienation. One way or another. And then everybody who is born into that world is experiencing it through structures that inhibit and uh, uh, that inhibit human interactions that can uh, be a wellspring of of, uh, of solidarity. And I would say that the American uh, road network, our automotive infrastructure, is a psychic prison branded onto the land that has the lived effect of imposing this false world on us, where we are alone, where we are fundamentally alone, and where we have to orient our desires, we have to orient our values around solitude, around isolation where we have to privilege our own sensory comfort and pleasure over others, even others close to us, because it is the only real thing we feel. And our, interst- our uh, automotive infrastructure ins- ensures that our felt day-to-day lives are isolated, that we spend time away from each other. Time, like the time in our bodies is alone. And if we live in a in a in a in a house, if we got a part of that post-war dream, it was in exchange for living more isolated lives. Instead of living in a walk-up good news, instead of living in a shitty uh walk-up with uh two kids in one bedroom, uh you get a a nice piece of land in the country and the kids can run in the background. That's great. But what you're giving up is the fact that you had fucking neighbors. That you had you could you spent a day walking amongst people, living amongst people. The, the, that suburban ease and comfort and convenience is at the expense of time spent with others. Now, for people say, do New Yorkers talk to their neighbors? Of course they don't now. Of course they don't now. This is the next step of that. Our fucking... Uh, Computer infrastructure, our, our media infrastructure, our, our mediated lives, generate that are now uh, pumped to us through Wi-Fi, are another lattice work of demiurgical re- constraint. Think of how much time you spend online. Think of how much, fuck even that, how much time you spent just watching television or did before the internet. That was time that you did spend, I'm sorry, commiserating, building notions of value, building notions of the good, building feelings around ideas and symbols that are forged in a social context. We receive these symbols passively and apply them from a, and and uh, uh, apply a solipsistic lens to them. And that is not a choice we make. It is not us moving towards sin. It is us being put into a black iron prison that is Yaldeboeth swooping in and severing us from connections that would pull us uh, towards the light of uh, the light of unity, which is where we are all always living, but not feeling as though we are living. I think Yaldabaoth, somebody says, does Yaldabaoth dumb or does Yaldabaoth get off on human suffering? I think if we conceive it as in human terms, which is what, you know, what it all comes down to, these are all, all these concepts are just metaphorical and symbolic structures to talk about the human mind, the collective and individual human mind. and if there is a evil god in intervening through a assertion of will and power uh into our affairs as humans it is not individual ch- point, it is not the choices of individuals it is the combination of uh the the ritualized sadism of those choices and i think that's the real uh symbolic value of of you know epstein shit and uh and bohemian grove it's the it's just a, it's it 's a sociological observation that people of a, of sufficient acuity of mind to know what they are doing when they are presiding over this system have to ritually invert human values in order to continue living. Consciously, subconsciously, they do this. The more self-aware they are, the more consciously they have to do it. And that means ritual affirmations of evil. Now, the problem with this metaphor, and the reason it's dangerous just out there as a way to understand the world, and why it leads to things like QAnon, is that I think the way people understand this process is as powerful people doing rituals to affirm their power and to uh, make us miserable. I honestly feel that that these rituals are better understood as coping mechanisms. You are trapped at the apex of a power structure that you are fully invested in. It's giving you more it's giving you pleasure, but more importantly, it is giving you the anxiety of losing that pleasure but it's also making you carry out monstrous acts and, and and preside over monstrosity well, if you feel that you cannot leave that position and you won't remember if you do and leave somebody else comes in who's in that spot who doesn't have those qualms, then you have to do something to to make the evil good. Hitler did that these through his uh, racial occultism. And our rulers do it through whatever fucking weird uh, uh, reptile religions they follow. Now, not all of the ruling class has to do that. Remember I said they're mostly dummies. And dumb people never have to worry about this stuff. Dumb people are so fully... Propagandized by their own bullshit that they spew out culturally, that they—it doesn't even occur to them, like the rickettses like those dumbasses, like the fucking Koch brothers who think libertarianism was real. Most of them are fucking dumb, by which I mean they are propagandized by uh, uh, truths that, given their uh, exposure to reality, they shouldn't believe, basically, is what it boils down to. Like We, as regular people, can be forgiven for believing the propagandized notions of American uh, the values. That's why we live in the Black Iron Prison. That's why we carry out evil, even though we're trying to do good. It's because we emerge into a culture, we're told certain things, we can only live a life and then and then compare it to our experiences or compare our experiences to what we're told, and then we have to deal with it. If you are at the apex of power, you have a different experience of, of existence. You see different things that undermine all of the bullshit that you tell everybody else. So there's a sufficient system of power, you should have no belief in any of this stuff. You should understand it to be bullshit. That's why they do ritual stuff to fill in the gap.
0: But if you're just a
1: dumbass who rises there because all it needs is a body and a chair, it doesn't need will. It doesn't. The system at those points, it doesn't need human initiative. It just needs a fucking body to fill a gap in a chain of reaction. They need somebody to complete the fucking, uh, um, to complete the circuit. They need a warm body to, to grab two, Uh, hot ends together. And so if they're dumbasses, they actually think this stuff. Ron Johnson, senator from Wisconsin. Uh, My cousin knows his family and has been to his house and he said that every room of their big fucking McMansion has Fox News on at maximum volume. Their house. He's a moron. He should know better. But he doesn't need to know better because what do you need to be to be a senator? You need to be a warm body in a suit who will vote away. Same way in all structures of government. There are a few places at high high levels of uh, sensitivity and intricacy that you still need intelligence, and that's where all the sickos are. That's where all the people who have some freakish, inverted, consciously evil understanding of the world live. Because you still need to be smart. But everybody else is just believing the same bullshit that we all do. Obungler... Obungler is a pure narcissist. He believes only in himself and completely to him, in himself to a, de- to a degree where he has become God. Which is, of course, the ultimate sin and makes him Satan. A human turned into a god is Lucifer. And Trump is the same thing. Pure ego. But Trump is also, Trump isn't really dumb so much as he doesn't care. He is so purely self- uh, fixated that he doesn't care he has no intellectual vanity Obama has intellectual vanity Trump just wants everyone to be paying attention to him but that's who's going to run for president and, and a glitching old robot like uh, jo- Joe Biden who still thinks it's 1975 that's it Someone says Trump is pure id, but Obama has a bit of superego. I would say that Trump is pure id. Obama is id transubstantiated into superego by an act of superhuman will. And that's why I really have to say that uh, if I have a candidate for like archon of archons right now, it would be Biden. Or did I say Biden? I meant Obama. Archon of Archons is a bungler, for sure. You know what? Trump is an archon. Trump is a demiurgical archon. Trump. I'm sorry. Obama is a demiurgical archon. Trump is more like one of those gods uh, of chaos from Warhammer. Anybody know about this Warhammer? You guys are aware of Warhammer? Paul, Paul, you know Warhammer. In Warhammer, there are these gods of chaos who emerge from like the 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 soup of consciousness, like the residue of human experience and they and these gods are sort of risen up by like human uh, human civilization. So you've got a god of war obviously, there's a god of uh, of uh, of disease and then there's a god of just pure vanity and it's it's him. With, with Obama, I think there's just too much uh, self-consciousness there. Like, he is trying to embody a system. He is trying to become America. Trump doesn't give a fuck about America. Trump is pure will to be seen. Like, the collective desire... The reason that he is loved and worshipped like no American president ever has been is because people who love him love themselves. They see him and they see a mirror. He is a media personality. He is a big, he is a air balloon filled with the collective narcissism of the white boomers, basically. No, see, someone says you'd think you'd have a beautiful god of vanity. No, no, no. That imagines that there is an objective beauty standard that I'm held to. Uh Uh-uh. My existence is self-validating. It's not because I'm beautiful. It's because I'm me. That's why people love Trump, because he asks nothing of them. Just like they ask nothing of themselves. So he doesn't have the, the directed desire to wield power or at least assimilate power so that it going through him, he gets to imagine is his will like Obama. Because Obama, he knows that he's not really in charge of anything, but he feels like being in the room validates him and if, infuses him with this structure because he worships the structure. He, he, he is invested in the structure. And he validates himself in relationship to the structure. Trump just wants everyone to be paying attention to him. He ran for president for people to pay attention to him. And then he accidentally won. He didn't want to win. And then he accidentally won. And then he just wants, hey, now everyone is paying attention to me. And every act of his entire presidency is only understood that way. Which is why, by the way, there is no revolutionary potential. There is no socialist uh radicalization potential there is no uh, there is no useful rep- political potential in the trump movement because it is an expression it is certainly generated by how miserable everyone is and alienated from the system they are but it captures that the, the form that it it that captures that feeling is a form of pure nihilistic narcissism it is looking in the mirror and being bewitched, which is the opposite of the uh, perspective that needs to be asserted in the political stage in order to actually create people willing to work against their own most narrowly conceived of pleasurable interests. Like I said, be willing to work for free. Trump has never worked for free. He's never worked, period. He's never for a second thought what can, about doing anything that wasn't in his most narrow, selfish interest. And that goes for everybody who votes for him. Not that that's all they feel, but that when they vote, that's all they're feeling. And even if they have some sort of vague populist resistance, their votes, aggregated, are simply this, this monstrous, un, uh, unshammeled id. Or unshackled it rather unshammelled. That's not a word. So anybody, there's so I see the people like, oh man, like he 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 triggers these bad libs who really are bad. Uh, his his followers have an, a knee jerk um, distrust of all these institutions which really are bad. If we could just turn them towards a project, as long as it is Trump, as long as the form is Trump. And if it's through the two-party system, that's the form it'll take. Because that's all there is, it will be this narcissistic project, this nihilistic project. And the reason people don't want to admit that is because it means you can't post your way out of it. You can't, oh, I'm gonna I'm going to epically meme Trumpism into being socialist, and then all these dumbasses are gonna vote. Uh, for what they think is Trumpism, but is actually socialism. No, no, now these Trump voters could be part of a future coalition that challenges capitalism. That's the thing, and that is the thing that a lot of leftists claim, and they are wrong. If you vote for Trump, you you cannot be uh, part of the uh, pro- the solution. That is absolutely incorrect. Bernie understood that, and it's key. In fact, it's Im- important and it's crucial to any progress because. There's a lot of them, and a lot of them are genuinely getting fucked by capitalism and could be useful against it. But they will have to be appealed to from a political uh, project that is orthogonal to Democrats and Republicans. But that means you can't meme your way into it. You can't just argue culture war stuff and hope it has the accumulated effect of pushing us toward socialism. It only advances this sterile culture conflict that benefits the machine that's whirring in the background the whole time and doesn't give a shit about the outcome of these contests that means we got to do hard work that means we got to organize in work places we got to give up on the idea that we're going to have an vested interest in presidential elections or uh, what happens in the house and senate We're going to have to put our noses to the grindstone and and focus on local power, which is not glamorous or fun or easy. It's going to take a lot to push people off of that hedonic treadmill, but it's happening. It's happening in bits and pieces, person by person across this country. And eventually you get enough popcorn kernels going off. And you have the potential for something to emerge, not the necessity that it will, not the guarantee that it will. This is why, in my mind, Marxism doesn't have to answer to any question of teleological. Uh, uh, it doesn't have to. Again, Marxism doesn't have to answer to the charge that it is excessively teleological, because right there in the manifesto, it says you have a conflict between classes, one class wins or there's a Common Ruin. Common Ruin is on the table. Common Ruin is the fucking uh, house favorite. Common Ruin uh, is a 14-point favorite going into the second half. But we can't say that's happening now. We don't know that's happening now. Saying it is happening now is indulgence to get out of the political commitments that morality uh, requires of you. And here I speak of myself too. Both options are on the table. You've got to fight the second half. It's difficult and we don't know, we don't really know what to do because we're all talking at a level of abstraction that cannot answer our day-to-day questions. We only have to think more deeply of those questions and ask more of ourselves in answering them. That's not satisfying, but it is. It's a course. It's a course forward. Yes, do- doomerism is absolutely bourgeois. It is a it is a decadent attitude. And everybody is going to be indulging it to some degree or another because we're humans and we're di- treat addicted and we are solipsistic. We're not going to change that overnight. And if we do try to change it overnight, we'll probably end up becoming un destabilized. But we have to every day try to adjust. Try to try to hear the voice. Try to hear the uh, to sound like a hippie here, but to hear the vibrations in the air, and to not not overrun them with our own uh, uh, hedonic nihilism, because that's never going to satisfy. It's only going to feel bad. It's going to feel worse over time, because that's the that is the real. Rejoinder to the argument that just be uh, is that black pill is the logical conclusion is okay fine how how do you feel your black pill how it feel feel good probably feels pretty bad so what are you gonna do about it and I ask myself that every day. And if, and if it feels fine, if you're like grooving on, uh, on doomerism, and it's like you've got a balance where you're not miserable, more power to you. I don't fucking blame you, but I really don't think that's true of most people. I think most people are, are, are not satisfied with the hedonic calculus that they're operating off of. But the important thing to remember is that nobody knows anything. Nobody knows what's going to happen. No one knows what's happened. No man shall know the hour or the day. And I'm sorry, that's you. It doesn't matter how many posts you've read. It doesn't matter how much analysis you've done. It doesn't matter how many Google alerts you have for climate disasters or whatever the fuck. It doesn't, you don't know. You do not know. Because who the fuck are you? Who are any of us? We're fragments. We're fragmentary people trying to find those missing pieces. But giving up giving up the certainty that we're seeking is, is agitating, and I think in a good way, because if you're agitated, you are aware something is wrong, and you have to address it. And there might not be a reason, but I really think that if you search for a place to put your energy, that you'll find it, if you're pursuing in good faith, a place to put them. Whew. All right, uh, I didn't do a chat all week, so I guess this was all build up. Mm. I am on Letterboxd. I just. I haven't seen anything. Okay, so next week I'm going to try to – maybe on Monday we'll talk about what uh, book to do next. If anyone has any ideas, we'll talk about them next week and then make a decision.